At this point in our service today, though, we're going to do what we have the joy and the privilege of doing every Sunday, which is open up our Bibles. So if you would, open up your Bible to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the very first verse in the New Testament. It's about two-thirds of the way through your Bible. Si hablo español, abran sus Biblias al Evangelio según Mateo. Capítulo 1, versículos 1 a 17. If you don't have a Bible or if you haven't read the Bible in a while or if you've never read the Bible, know that this is, this is a safe place for you to be this morning. We're, we're all sort of in this together. We're all learning how to read the Bible. We're all learning how to interpret and apply the Bible. None of us is doing this perfectly, so we're all in this together. We even have extras under the chairs of the center aisle if you don't have one with you. And this Sunday, we're taking a brief break from our series in the Gospel of Mark to dip into another gospel, obviously the Gospel of Matthew, as the first of a five-message Christmas series that we've titled, Christ is Born for You. And this year, kind of breaking from the tradition of the last five years, we're, we're jumping into the birth narratives in the Gospels. But today, we're looking at a text that precedes Matthew's birth narrative. The the text that Matthew chooses to open up the entire New Testament with. And boy, oh boy, do do we find that this this is a dramatic text. It's a great story. Just kidding, it's not a story at all. It's a list of names. It's the kind of text that you you would tend to just open up your Bible to and sort of gloss over, that you see see in your sort of daily devotional reading plan, and you go, okay, this is going to be an easy easy reading day because I'm really just not going to read this, right? I'm going to read the first verse and then just sort of skip over all the way to the last verse, and there that chapter's done. But there's more for us in here than you could ever really have expected. So with that, with your finger on... Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Let's, let's actually read this long list of names. Matthew 1, 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, 
and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Methan, and Methan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is God's Word. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the historical testimony of your Word, for how you've preserved your promises through imperfect, fallen, rebellious people. Thank you that you've preserved your promises up until not just the birth of Jesus, but to today, to us, to the people sitting in this room. Would you be gracious to us? Would you send your spirit to open our ears and open our eyes to what you would have us to learn this morning? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Commentator Patrick Schreiner says that the Bible contains 66 books by at least 40 different authors, is written in three different languages, describing three different continents, all written over a period of at least 1,500 years. It has thousands of characters and numerous genres. Sometimes it's narrative, other times you have beasts flying around with a bunch of different eyes, and then there are love poems. We don't read many books this complex anymore. So it would seem a compelling introduction would be in order for the New Testament. But what we find at the beginning of the New Testament is a bunch of names. It's this sort of seeming anti-climax. This, this new chapter in history opens up with a bunch of names, a genealogy. But Patrick Schreiner continues, he says, but Matthew begins this way intentionally because in many ways, this is the most fitting and compelling introduction to the New Testament imaginable. Now let me show you why. Look down at verse 1 of chapter 1. Matthew opens up by saying, the book of the genealogy. That, that, that English phrase is a, a Greek phrase of two words that's pronounced libros, genesis. Literally, the book of the Genesis. That phrase is contained only two other times in the entire Bible, 
in Genesis chapter 3 and Genesis chapter 5. Matthew opens up the New Testament with the words, a new Genesis, a new beginning. Commentator Patrick O'Donnell says that with this new Genesis, Matthew introduces that God offers his creation a recreation, a chance for a new start. And that new start comes through the one that this genealogy ends with, this Jesus of whom Matthew speaks in verse 1. But this Jesus didn't just appear out of nowhere. God had promised him. He had prepared the way for him for millennia. This new beginning is, is part of a much bigger story. It's not disparate. It, it, it doesn't just appear out of nowhere. And, and this genealogy is no mere list of names. It's a summary of that story that Jesus is a part of. In, in these first 17 verses, we literally have a summary retelling of the Old Testament. That's what these first 17 verses are. This is, this is a summary of the entire Old Testament. This is a summary. This is a story of the Bible up until this point in 17 verses. And here's what we need to see in this. You'd think, wouldn't you? You would think that if God were going to create a new beginning out of the mess that humanity had made, and make no mistake that, that humanity was a mess at this point in time, just like it still is today, you would think that he'd work from the purest bloodline possible. You would think that the family portrait that sits portrayed here preceding Jesus would, would be a family portrait of of. Ivy League college grads dressed in sweaters and khaki pants, right? But it's not. If that were the case, then, then it would also be reasonable to expect that, that those kinds of people would be the ones that God sent this Jesus to give a new beginning to, to, to that, that he'd sent his son to effectively shield the best of the best of humanity from, well, from people like me, people like us. See, what I mean by this is that who he was born from tells us who he was born for. Who Jesus was born from teaches us something. It, it, it sends a message. It tells us who he was born for. And his bloodline, it is surprising. It, it is people like us not the best of the best, not the most qualified, not the most righteous, not the most religious. It's people like us. People like our, our, our Santa Ana neighbors, people like your neighbors. Not, not the best of the best. The very people who had made a mess of their own lives and a mess of the world, the, the, the underwhelming, the, the, the failures, and this, this gives us hope. Oh, so, some of you all out there, you, you, you're the best that I know. But when we look at our, our own lives in the grand scope of, of our lives, we're not the best of the best. 
we see who he was born from. It gives us hope that, that maybe God sent Jesus to, to offer a new beginning to the very ones like us who had made a mess of, of their lives and made a mess of this world. So, so just who was he born from? Four, four, four points this morning, and I'll reveal them as, as we go. But we can sort of look at this huge list of three sets of 14 generations and sort of conclude four, four summary points about what Matthew's teaching us here. And the first of those four points is that he was born from a line of sinners and exiles. Born from a line of sinners and exiles. One of the things that this genealogy tells us is that this Jesus whose birth is, is about to be described in the verses after verse 17 is somebody rooted in real history. And you can't miss that in this. Jewish hopes from the very beginning, from, from the original beginning, from Adam and Eve, from the first two humans, Jewish hopes centered around a true historical genealogy. God had even given Eve a, a promise that a descendant from her would crush the serpent's head. And, and, and Jewish people, from, from the time of their creation as a people, knew from other promises given to Abraham and to David, to Moses, that there would come a child from, from the people of Israel who would be sent to save them. He, they knew it would come, he would come from their bloodline. So they, they kept meticulous historical genealogies. I mean, extremely meticulous genealogies. The, the Hebrew Bible, called the Tanakh, is arranged in a, different, in a different order than your Old Testament is in, in your Bible. It contains the same books, but it starts with Genesis and it ends with Chronicles. And Genesis, if you've read Genesis recently, has three chapters of this massive genealogy, tracing, tracing the line from Adam all the way to Abraham. And then the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, concludes with Chronicles, with another massive genealogy, tracing the genealogy from Adam through Abraham and to David. And that's where the Hebrew Bible ends. So now Matthew is opening the New Testament with the genealogy, tracing it from, from Abraham through David, through the exile, to Jesus. And that is significant. For, for, for one, Matthew shows us that this is no myth. This is no momentary religious fanatical movement. Jesus is a historical person with the precise pedigree to be the promised son of Israel. But here's what you need to see. While this is a true genealogy, this is a historically true genealogy. It's not a comprehensive genealogy. Uh, Matthew, notice he, he has three sets of 14. There were actually more generations than those 14 within those periods of time. This actually spans over 2,000 years if he's beginning with Abraham. So what that means is that there are generations and names that Matthew chooses not to mention, which makes the ones that he does mention all the more surprising. 
Take, take Rehoboam, for instance, in verse 7. You know anything about Rehoboam? Rehoboam was not a good guy. He was Solomon's son. And he rebelled against the Lord, and he was actually the one who was responsible for dividing Israel into two kingdoms, into Judah and Israel, a, a division that, that was still not healed all these years later at the time that Jesus was born. Take Joram in verse 8. 2 Kings 8, 18 says that he walked in the, king, in the way of the kings of Israel and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He incited the Edomite rebellion and he could not unite his people after that rebellion. And at the point of Matthew's writing, Edom was still in revolt against Judah. Look at Amos, verse 10. Amos abandoned the Lord and did not walk in the way of the Lord, 2 Kings 21. So cruel and evil was Amos that, that his closest friends and advisors murdered him in his own house. Couldn't stand him. Jeconiah, verse, verse 11. He's at the end of the list of cruel kings. He's the one who allowed Babylon to take Judah into exile and was deposed as king by the emperor of Babylon. Speaking of, of exile, the exile is the only event that Matthew mentions outside of Jesus' birth in this genealogy. That, that exile was ongoing. It, it had taken place nearly 400 years ago. So the context that Matthew is writing into is the context of, of exile. God had been silent. Nobody had heard from God for 400 years. Israel and Judah had slipped so far into idolatry and rebellion, they barely resembled the nation that God had formed them to be hundreds and hundreds of years before. And here's what we need to see in this. There were some faithful kings in Jesus' line. Matthew doesn't mention them. He does not mention them. That is so significant. He leaves them out. To make it plain to you and me that Jesus came from a line of sinners and exiles. Jesus' family portrait does not look like sweaters and khakis and college grads. It's more like a group photo in a prison yard. In the old claymation Rudolph movie, and you know I'm going to mention Christmas movies. It's, it's the time of year. But you know, you know this movie. Rudolph finds himself at one point in the story on the island of what? On the island of misfit toys. And you can hear the song ringing in your head right now, can't you? I, even if you can't, I can. But listen, Matthew tells us that Jesus was born from a line of misfit people. The island of misfit toys is, is, is the island where all defective toys were, were sent to be exiled because nobody wanted them. Jesus came from a line of, of misfit people, and, and he, he wasn't born into a world that, that, that was a world with two islands, a, an island of misfit people and, and an island of non-defective people. The reality is we're all defective. We're all misfit. We're all exiles. Literally, that, that's because according to Genesis 3, 
sin results in the sentence of, of exile from, from God's presence and God's blessing. We're all exiles. Friends, this is good news that Jesus was born. That Jesus was born from a line of sinners and exiles. We need to see this, but, but it gets even better because second point here, if you're taking notes, he was born from a line of both somebody's and nobody's. He was born from a line of somebody's and nobody's. This list, it's full of recognizable names. Abraham, right? Even, even if you're not a Christian, maybe if, if you're Jewish or, or you're, you're Muslim, even if you don't believe in God, you, you probably know Abraham, Isaac, Judah, King David. You probably know the story of David and Goliath. I mean, these are, these are the names that have transcended millennia. It's also full of kings, kings who ruled nations, who were, who were powerful, who had major say-so over political and national events. It's full of somebodies, but it's also full of nobodies. Look at Manasseh, verse 10. Manasseh, this Manasseh at least, isn't mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. He is in other Jewish and Masoretic texts, but mentioned nowhere in the Bible. Achim and Eliud, verse 14, mentioned nowhere in the Bible. They're nobodies. They're not great fathers of the faith. But perhaps even more surprising than these guys are the names of women in this list. In, in a patriarchal society, it's surprising that women are included at all. In the ancient Near Eastern world, not just Jewish tradition, but in the entire ancient Near East, it was never customary, ever, to include women in a list of genealogy, ever. So, so for a Jewish reader to read this and to see Ruth and Tamar and the wife of Uzziah, Bathsheba, and Rahab in this list, that would, that would pique everybody's interest. But let's, let's just say Matthew, he's just doing this to sort of buck tradition. And he, he's, kind of, he's kind of creating his own path. You would at least expect that he would include the, the great matriarchs of the faith, right? Eve, Sarah, Rebecca, Leah. But no, he includes Tamar, Ruth, Rahab, Bathsheba. No, nobody's. Here's what, here's what Matthew's telling us. He's telling us that the somebodies in this list show us that Jesus is greater than the greatest. Of, of, of the greatest who have come before him, including Abraham and David, Jesus is still greater. But the nobodies show us that he's not above loving the least. In fact, that's precisely who he came for. Are, are you a somebody? I know I'm not. Have you become the person you've always dreamed that you've become or that you would become? Have you measured up to your own expectations? Have, have you measured up to the expectations of others around you? I know I'm not a somebody. I'm a, I'm a pastor of, of the church that I dearly love, but I'm not a celebrity pastor. 
I don't have an, an impressive rank. I don't have a huge house and a ton of money. Even if I did, I'd still be a relative nobody. What does it even mean to be a somebody in this world? Even if you are, it's fleeting. And, and you might spend your time curating your social media accounts to try to make yourself somebody in others' eyes. Or by striving after whatever achievement it is that would really make you feel like a somebody until that achievement itself isn't enough anymore. Whoever you are, this obscure genealogy tells you that Jesus, <laughs> Jesus looks through the crowd and he sees you. You are somebody in his eyes. He was born for you. No matter how much of a nobody you think you might be, no matter how unworthy you think you might be of his attention, he sees you and he cares. But listen, what if you're not just a what if you're not just a nobody? What if you just feel like you don't belong at all? What if you look at yourself and you know I don't belong? Well, that brings us to the third point. That Jesus was born from a line of the shunned and the ashamed. He's born from a line of the shunned and the ashamed. And and, and there's we're going we're gonna to stick on these four women here. There's more to be said about these four women. To, to a Jewish reader, they, they really are the names that jump out at you for, for so many different reasons. One of the reasons being that they're all Gentiles. All four of them are Gentiles. Rahab. Rahab was a Syrian proselyte. Tamar was a Canaanite. Bathsheba was the wife of Uriah, who was a Hittite. She was a Hittite. And Ruth, she was a Moabite. All four, none of them are Jews. Yet they're the four women that Matthew chooses to include in the list of Jesus' own genealogy, the Jewish Savior. The names of these women on this list hint that the message of Jesus' gospel would not be one that's draped in a star of David. That it wouldn't be a message that's draped in an American flag either. It would, it would be a gospel that, that, that was for Jews and Americans and, and Mexicans and Africans and Arabs and Filipinos and Russians and Ukrainians and, and Europeans and and, and Chinese and Japanese and every nation on the face of the planet. That's what's being said by the, by the mention of these four women's names. But not even, not even that. All of these women tell an even more wonderful but painful story about Jesus through their shame. They all have painful sexual histories. Rahab wasn't just a Canaanite, she was a Canaanite prostitute. Tamar was imposed upon by her own father-in-law. 
Bathsheba was taken advantage of by the most powerful man in the kingdom. And they all bore their shame. The shame of the part that they played in, in their own wrong, wrongdoing over their lives, but also the shame of being taken advantage of and abused. The Bible doesn't skirt around those issues. This is the kind of shame that, that drives a person to the fringes, to the, to the outskirt, to the outskirts, drives them to be socially and ceremonially unacceptable. Listen, no, no need to identify yourself, but is that, is that you? Does shame describe how you see yourself and feel about yourself? For whatever the reason, feeling unacceptable, out on the fringes or even belonging beyond the fringes? If that's you, listen, the inclusion of these women on this list emphatically declares that Jesus was born for you. Jesus was born to give his grace to you that you might that you might have a place of belonging in his family. And if that is you, I would encourage you, come, come and talk to me or the person sitting next to you before you leave. It's, it's a conversation worth having. The very bloodline of Jesus extends a warm invitation to both the shunned and the ashamed. A warm invitation. But more than anything else, more than anything else that we have yet said, the bloodline of Jesus tells a much, much more significant story and one really central story, and it's, it's this. Fourth point, the fourth and final point this morning. Jesus was born from a line of God's faithfulness. That's what's ultimately being told here in Matthew chapter 1. Born from a line of God's faithfulness. This genealogy isn't ultimately about the people. The gospel message and, and your life, it's ultimately not about you. It's about God. The God who stands above it all, who has existed before and behind all things in your life and all of history. God had promised to Israel that he would raise up a Savior out of the family of Abraham in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 and Genesis 17. He would made that promise to Abraham. And then again, he gave a promise to David in 2 Samuel 17 that the king of kings would come from David's line. That's why in chapter 1, verse 1 here of Matthew, he begins it saying the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He's referring back to those promises. He was saying, hey, Israel, God made a promise to you. Let me show you how he keeps that promise. That line could have been broken, actually should have been broken in any of a thousand fragile moments. I may be referencing stories that you're not familiar with, but if you are familiar with these stories, just, just think. He carries the family line on despite Israel's sin, despite their shame, despite their failures. Abraham and Sarah should have remained childless. 
By all logical reasoning, they should have remained childless, and the line should have ended with them. Judah and his brothers should have either died in the famine or they should have been executed by their brother who came into power in Egypt after they'd sold him into slavery. He had every political right to execute them for what they had done to him. Yet he showed them grace. The whole Hebrew people should have remained slaves in Egypt. They were a weak and powerless people who were completely subjugated under the hand of Pharaoh, having no hope to save themselves. They should have remained where they are by logical reasoning. David statistically should have been killed by Saul at least once. One of those spears should have caught him. Or by one of his enemies. Or by Goliath. How many times should David have died? He should have died so many times. But he didn't. All logic said that Ruth should have stayed in Moab and not gone with Naomi. That she shouldn't have met Boaz. The constant in all of these is God's preservation. None of these are accidents. None of them. Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus the Christ, the promised one, the son of David, the son of Abraham, by the faithfulness of God. That's what's happening right here. Not by the goodness of the people in this list or the ability of the people in this list or, or, or the righteousness of anybody on this list. This list is a broken list full of people who had tried to be good enough before God and had fallen on their faces. Last night we, we watched a, a new Christmas movie called Spirited. Uh, it's it's a, another modern a- adaptation of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. What is that, like the 200th adaptation, adaptation of that movie? But this one takes, it takes a twist. It asks, can the Scrooge character be redeemed? Or, or is he unredeemable? Actually, fascinating question. One of the songs, and yes, it's, it's a musical, so I'm spoiler right there. If you don't like mu- musicals, sorry, don't watch it. Uh, but if you like musicals, go, go and listen to the song. One of the songs near the end, it, it's titled Do a Little Good. It offers an answer to the question, can, can the unredeemable be redeemed? And in the chorus it says, maybe there is no magic wand. Maybe there is no switch to flip. Some days you may soar beyond and some days you may start to slip. But you can give the world some good in the daily give and take. Did you catch that? Some days you may soar beyond and some days you may start to slip, but you can try each day to to do your best and to give the world a little good. That's a positive message, but, but in other words, what you're saying is maybe we just give up on being redeemed and just do our best to be good people. Now, the reason I mention this is because the philosophy of this chorus is the philosophy of the whole Old Testament. That is the story of the whole Old Testament. Just try to do a little bit better today than I did yesterday. 
Just try to do a little good. Try to honor God just a bit more. Try to be kinder. Try to be better. Try and try and try. And though the song says, some days you may soar and some days you may slip, what humanity has found over time is that we slip a whole lot more than we soar. And Israel over time had slipped into a deep, dark hole. And that's the same place that we find ourselves if that's the philosophy that we take. Just do a little good. Reality is we slip more than we would ever like to admit that we do. But the song is right in one thing. There is no magic wand. There is no switch to flip inside of us. But maybe there's a son. Maybe there's a savior that God could give us to live the perfect life that we've failed to live and to die in our place to redeem the unredeemable. That's what this genealogy suggests. No magic wand, no switch to flip. Maybe there's a son. Maybe there's a son who God could send. And you see, the, the genealogies in Genesis and Chronicles, they're pictures of genealogical death. They're pictures of genealogical death. They, they go, just like this one starts, he lived and gave birth to so-and-so, and he died. And he lived and gave birth to so-and-so, and he died. But Matthew's genealogy ends with resurrection life. It ends on, look at verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. And from that word, who is called the Christ, Matthew then goes on to tell the story of this Jesus, the last name in this list. And the last name in this list, well, he dies for our sins. But he alone among all the rest, does not, raise, does not remain in the grave. He's raised to new life. Matthew's genealogy is a genealogy leading to an ending in resurrection life. A child has been born who will never perish. And this child was born because God is faithful to his promise. Patrick Schreiner says, and this is, this is directed straight to you, so if, if you're listening to this, perk your attention up for just a moment here. If God has pledged himself to you, he isn't letting you go. No matter what you do. Israel could not outsin the promises of God. And neither can you. How good is that news? You, you, you might be racked with shame, feeling insignificant, aware of your sin, feeling like you belong somewhere else other than here, but you are no worse than any of the people on this list. You have not outsinned yourself from the promises of God. Jesus was born for you. And your responsibility is to believe, to believe in him as your only hope, as your only hope for redemption, 
Apart from him, you, you are unredeemable. But through him all comes redemption, salvation, eternal life, the resurrection life that he alone achieved, friends. Friends, who he came from tells us who he came for. And as we celebrate the birth of Christ this year and every day, we remember he was born not for those with the best pedigree possible. He was born for us, that in him we might have salvation. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, we, we don't stand before you claiming to be those who are most qualified or most worthy or most deserving. We don't, we don't pretend to be the best in our neighborhood. We don't even pretend to be the best in this room. Lord, we are unworthy people, but you, you are a kind and gracious and loving God. You sent your Son for people like us from people like us. Thank you for giving us the testimony so that we might have assurance that we're not mistaken in believing that he, he might be sent for somebody like us. I pray that you would strengthen our, our faith, strengthen our assurance, help those whose assurance is faltering even this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.